It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today it is my honor to host Johnny Crowder. Hi, Johnny. Howdy. Howdy. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm pumped on it. What type of plant is behind you, by the way? What type of plant? That is a bamboo plant that likes me. It's actually happy, which <sighs> I have I have a bunch of plants that aren't friendly to me, or I'm not friendly to them. I'm not sure what the problem is. <laughs> do those do those take a super long time to grow? You know, I think they do. This one has gone crazy, but we have one in our living room that um, is more unhappy. So I'm hoping that it grows into a big, big bamboo tree. That's my, that's my hope. That's awesome. I love so having I can, green inside. So I could get my own panda or something. <laughs> So, hey, so Johnny is 28 year old survivor. I'm just going to start that over. Johnny is a 28 year old suicide abuse survivor, a TEDx speaker, a touring musician, mental health and sobriety advocate, and the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, a text based mental health platform that provides daily support to users in nearly 100 countries around the world. Armed with 10 years of clinical treatment, a psychology degree from the University of Central Florida, and a decade of peer support and public advocacy through the National Alliance of Mental Illness, Johnny's youthful vigor for mental health has impacted millions across the globe. That is all saying you are a busy man. Yeah. Even, I mean, as evidenced by the beginning of our call where I said, can I pop up and fill my water bottle? (laughs) (laughs) Bio breaks. So I'm curious, first of all, not on my list of questions, but tell me about cope notes. Yeah. So an easy way to think about cope notes is we use daily text messages to improve mental and emotional health. Uh So what we do is we take these messages that are written by peers with lived experience and reviewed by mental health professionals. And then we deliver them at random times to surprise Uh your brain into thinking in healthier patterns. That's great. So is this a fee-based program? Yeah, it's subscription-based. So either you can go buy a subscription for yourself or a friend or family member, or um, if you're like part of a large group, you can get a free subscription through like your school, if your school pays for it or your employer, or even um, we're starting to work with like counties and cities. So if you're a resident of a certain county, you could use it for free. That's fantastic. How long has that been going? We, well, the version of Cope Notes that exists today has, um, we launched about three and a half years ago. Okay. And it sounds like it's going good. Yes, definitely. We had some, some rocky parts of our journey where I was pretty nervous. Um, but I I think we've seen a lot of growth and a lot of demand for what we do. Uh So I'm extremely thankful that it's still standing after COVID. That was scary. I was just going to say, how has COVID affected it? Yeah. First, I thought it was going to bankrupt us. Like, really? It got really, really ugly. Yeah. Cause 
remember early COVID when everyone got really worried about money and they like, yep, they just clung on to the, lots of people canceled their subscriptions and they not only individual people who said like, well, I want to save my 10 bucks a month. I don't want to put it towards mental health or anything. I want to hang on to that 10 bucks because I don't know if I'll need it. Um, then we had these large organizations that were saying, we're cutting all spending. Like oh. our budget is completely frozen. So we can't spend on anything. So we our monthly revenue, like basically went to zero um, oh. in early COVID. And I was like, what are we going to do? And then slowly um, over the course of the next few months, um, it probably took like six months or more for us to get back some of the to the same level that we were pre COVID. But then we started seeing some growth where the people who came back brought their friends. That's great. So there was probably a lot of praying on your part going on during those months. <laughs> so, you know, what's brutal is I, for the last three years, I have fasted for financial provision in January. So my church uh -huh. does a, a fast every January. Um, and I've fasted for financial provision for the company for three years in a row. And that year I went, my bank account, my business bank account went to zero during the fast, during my third consecutive oh. annual fast for financial provision. I'm like, God, what are you doing up there? <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. Well, we know God answers prayers. It's just not always in the way or the time that we want, right? Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, what was your faith background um, like growing up? Well, I'm, I'll start by saying I'm pretty surprised that I'm friends with Jesus. Like, I, I did not see that coming. Um, when really? I was growing up, I was in a Catholic household. Uh-huh. And it wasn't so much like you didn't really see Christianity practiced actively okay. in the home. It was more like you put on your collared shirt and you go to church and then you try to get out as quickly as you can because football is going to be on TV. So it was more like <laughs> an obligation than anything. And growing up, I, um, I grew up with pretty severe schizophrenia among other diagnoses. And I was hallucinating, like I was having a lot of religious hallucinations, namely around like the devil and demons and stuff. So it was, uh -huh. um, as hard as I tried to wrap my head around the concept of God or faith, I was so cynical and hurt and bitter. Um, and I saw such a poor representation of what Christianity should look like that I went completely off the other end. I was like, you know what? Either God's not real or he is real and he's evil and trying to mm -hmm. hurt me. So it took me a long, long, long time to find my way back to Jesus. How did you find your way back to Jesus? Well, I can't even, even saying it like that makes it sound like I deserve credit for it, <laughs> but um, I don't know that that's the case. I, well, it's grace that draws us, right? Yeah. I had a, I had this is going to sound so wild to like younger me who would roll his eyes at, at a word like encounter, but I definitely had like a real experience with God, um, outside of a comedy show that I was about to play. I was outside. I was going on stage in about an hour. Um, and I just like had a real conversation with God. This was completely blew my mind. 
And then for the next year or two, I spent all that time researching like every everything but Christianity, right? Like uh-huh. I, I have a great big giant Buddha tattooed on my entire back. Uh-huh. So I went straight to like Eastern philosophy and religions and I read all about Taoism and I was like trying to make, I was trying to end up anywhere besides Christianity because I had such a bad taste in my mouth. Right. Um, and then eventually through all of my research and conversations, everything was pointing back to Jesus. Like I would read a book about Buddhism and it kept referencing Jesus. And then I'd read a book about Taoism and it kept referencing <laughs> referencing Jesus. I'm like, I can't escape this guy. That's amazing. And so, um, you mentioned, um, some schizophrenia when you were younger. What was, what was your childhood like? It was very ugly. Um, so I grew up in an abusive household. Um, so not only was I living with a lot of mental health diagnoses, like primarily OCD, and bipolar one, um, really severe depression, um, pretty significant anxiety. Like I had a lot of different competing diagnoses, but then I was also in an environment where I was like afraid to be, to be hit or hurt, um, physically. So I am shocked that I am like a functioning member of society because I had every reason to just, um, like become a criminal. So I'm so thankful. Yeah. Did was the schizophrenia part of the bipolar? I don't a thousand percent know where the lines should be drawn because I had so many sure. concurrent diagnoses that sometimes I would experience something and my my clinician would be like, well, that sounds like, you know, a dash of mania from your bipolar. And then maybe it sounds like a little bit of schizophrenia. And then other days it's like, well, that sounds more of like an anxiety meets OCD meets PTSD type of symptom. So it was lots of like both. And so were a lot of those diagnoses happening when you were young? Well, no, because I mean, this sounds mind blowing now, but it took me 10 years over 10 years from onset of symptoms to the beginning of my treatment. Okay. Um, but actually that's like the average in America. Is it, is it really like literally an entire decade from onset of symptoms to actually engaging in treatment? Well, I guess that would be, well, I guess I'm about 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doesn't I'm a, it? it sounds I'm a crazy. slow learner. <laughs> it sounds crazy. But then when you think of your own life, you're like, oh, that did take me a while too, you know? Yeah, I guess so. So um, when you found out about kind of your diagnosis with mental illness, um, how did you handle that? Like a brat. <laughs> like <laughs> when I, So when I first heard it, I, I basically just kind of reflected it back at my clinician. So I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. And like, you, you think just cause you drive a nice car and you have a you have perfect family and picket fence. And I was like such a brat. And then I, I just had so much initial self stigma that I uh-huh. like um, got really defensive, but I was curious about it, even though I was like, my doctor's wrong. I was still really curious about it. So I started taking psychology courses in high school. So I took college level psych in junior year of high school. 
Um, and then I took a, a part two of that senior year. So by the time I went to college, I was already two years in to, to a psychology degree, basically. So and, you're like, damn it, I'm going to figure this out. And, and honestly, I was doing it in a way to like prove my doctors wrong. Like okay. it wasn't, it wasn't like, I'm going to be responsible and learn. I was like, these idiots don't know what they're talking about. Like, I'm going to learn about psychology. I'm going to help other people, but not me. I felt like I, w- I had so much self stigma that I was just in denial about my own diagnoses. But yeah. think about it, when you're, when a doctor says, you know, you, your, your behaviors are a result of obsessive compulsive disorder. And I go, no, they're not screw you. And then, cause it felt, it felt personal to me in that clinical mm-hmm. environment. But then if you're at school and you're reading a textbook and the textbook outlines the behaviors that I'm exhibiting as being related to OCD, it's, it can't be personal. It's a book. Then you can kind of self-identify instead exactly. of having someone make it personal. You know, the reason why I asked that question is, is a reflection of my own experience. Um, when I was diagnosed, I have complex PTSD and depression and anxiety, and I have a dissociative disorder. And when I first was told that it was so overwhelming to me. Um, not only that, you know, I was told kind of at the same time that you'd need a lifetime of care and medication and all of that, mm-hmm. but also, like you said, the, the self, um, stigma and the shame of just carrying this thing that I, that I felt like I had to carry. And, um, so everybody's story is a little bit different, but I just asked that because that was my experience was just, um, carrying the stigmas. Yeah. Now, I mean, people wonder like why I'm on such a soapbox about stigma. And I'm like, because it kept me from accepting help for so long that I almost died. Like if people actually came to terms with like what these symptoms and diagnoses look like in real life and we stopped Mm -hmm. like romanticizing them and we really had a good understanding of what it looked like, we would get help so much sooner and so many more people would be healthier right now. Right. So identify for me some of the stigmas that exist about mental health, mental illness. So, I mean, I'll try to think one that blows my mind and is really frustrating me lately is related to depression. So Mm -hmm. think, think about all of my diagnoses that I list. Let's just take a, a sample. I'll take three of them. Um, schizophrenia, bipolar one and depression. Mm hmm. Why on earth do two of those sound really brutal and one sounds casual? Like Mm -hmm. depression has become so colloquialized that we don't treat it like a real debilitating thing to experience. Mm -hmm. Like we say, oh, well, everybody gets depressed and we've, we've laughed off or become so accustomed to the use of the word depressed mm-hmm. that we've like we've made a Hollywood version of what we expect depression yeah. to be. And it's like, well, you're sad, you eat some ice cream. And it's like, no, like you can't even function. Well, I would say we've made we've made sad a synonym of yep. depressed. And so it really minimizes when people are actually dealing with clinical depression that is affecting their brain chemistry, you know? 
Yeah. And then, so the stigma there is, well, depressed means like I'm emo or something mm-hmm. or, right. like I, or like I'm being negative. So mm-hmm. there's a weird stigma there, but then there's also the stigma. The, the symptom that I had a really hard time with was, um, or the diagnosis that I had a really hard time with was schizophrenia because in my head, and this is going to sound terrible, but it's the truth. In my head, when I was diagnosed, I said, no, schizophrenic people are the ones in straight jackets and the ones mm-hmm. who are like, who are like committing crime, like mass shootings and stuff. Living that, on the street, talking to themselves. That in my mind was my image of schizophrenia. And that stigma not only made me unwilling to speak to other people about it, which was really damaging, but it also kept me from accepting help because right. I was in denial. I'm not like those people. Absolutely. I like villains of people who were living with the same diagnoses as me, just so I could separate myself from them. I right. was scared. Right. It kind of, it, I think that sense of the other insulates us from having to, to feel Um, some of what the diagnosis does. And I think if we look at diagnostics as tools and access on ramps to getting help, it really helps us to reframe it. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. The other thing is I even call it out in my Ted talk at the end of the talk, I say something like um, if you've been sitting here for the last 15 minutes, thinking that I was talking about somebody else, like reality check, <laughs> you know, and I, and everyone laughs and I'm like, yeah, it's funny because everyone in this room was doing it. And I've done that almost my entire life. I always think about, oh, if I read something about depression, I'm like, oh, you know who needs to read this? My cousin. It's like, no, well, maybe she does too, right. but don't make yourself so separate from it that you miss the support that you could benefit from. Right. Do you think we will ever come to a point? I mean, I know this is all of our hope, but do you think we'll ever come to a point when we can talk about mental illness in the way that we talk about heart disease or diabetes and say they have diabetes, they're on a pump. Nobody thinks that that is a a blight on somebody's character. Do you think we'll get there? I a hundred percent do like it, I don't think it's going to be immediate, but I've devoted my entire life to making sure that culture gets there. So mm-hmm. 100%, I think we're going to get there. It's just going to take a lot of conscious prioritization. I think a mm-hmm. lot of people have, if you take their priority list, like let's say an employer or an organization or a hospital or nonprofit, whatever, they might have a priority list. Mental health is probably number nine, mm-hmm. number 14. You know, it's certainly not in the top three. And I think the more communities that shortlist mental health and put it closer to the top, the less people are going to die, like point blank. Yeah. So do you think, I mean, now the estimates are saying that one out of four Americans are dealing with clinical illness and largely because clinical mental illness because of isolation in COVID. Do you think that is going to pitch us forward towards having better conversation? Yeah. So it's, it's bittersweet, right? Because you, I wish that less and less people were experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Um, But as more and more people experience it, I think we're going to reach a point where people can't pretend anymore. Like think about me. I lived 
with OCD for years and years, but only when I couldn't function, like I couldn't touch door handles, I couldn't step on cracks, I couldn't touch my food, it would take me an hour and a half to make a sandwich. If I put my deodorant on slightly wrong, I'd have to get back in the shower. Like I could almost not even function in my daily life Mm -hmm. before I was like, fine, I will go see somebody about this. And I think America as a people, we are approaching the point where it's like, okay, if it's one out of four of us, we can't just pretend like it's only somebody. It's only those people or those people like we're going to get to a point where we say, if I don't live with a diagnosis, I can reach out my hand and touch somebody who does in any direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think that's true. You know, another kind of going back to um, words that are synonymous, another one that um, kind of jumps out me out at me sometimes is when people talk about panic attacks. Oh my gosh, I was having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we use that as a synonym for being anxious for something yep. going wrong in our life when panic attacks are vicious, vicious things and completely debilitating. Yep. I also hear, even hearing you say anxious, people use that to mean nervous. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're about to, you're about to ask a girl out and you feel nervous. Yeah. Anxiety is different. It right. just, it just is like, I've been nervous and then I've had like a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And those are two completely different things. Just like, you know, people saying anxiety attack. Like I've fortunately, I've, I've lived with anxiety for for basically my entire life. And I've felt really debilitating anxiety in certain situations, but an anxiety attack, it feels like you're going to die. Right. It's a totally different level. And I think you're right. We, we toss around a phrase like that. I have a panic attack. I have an anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. And it's like, did, and I don't mean to, it, it gets tricky here because I can't tell you what you experienced. Right. We're not so trying to diminish somebody's experience. experience. Yeah. Right. But I do think the the level of comfort that we have with certain phrases breeds misinformation. And then when someone else says they had a panic attack or anxiety attack, and it was really an attack and it was like debilitating, we say, oh yeah, I get those all the time. All the mm-hmm. time? You wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to function as a person if you had them all the time. Right, right. So um, talk to me a little bit about suicidality. You have been there and have felt that darkness. Um, What point in your life was that? Probably. So I started seriously considering and obsessing over suicide in middle school. Really? And I would say it was at its peak in college so all throughout high school college it got really really bad and then post-college um was really brutal so i would say probably ages 10 to 24 Mm -hmm. or so was probably the worst of it there were some earlier and later incidents but probably the worst of it was in that 14 year period were there consistent triggers or were they varied it was, this is going to sound dark, but it is dark. I was almost like actively looking for reasons to 
not be alive anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I was, you know how you see what you look for kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was always on the lookout for reasons to justify my suicidality. So I wasn't out there being like, give me a reason to, to keep on being alive today. I would be like collating a list of all of the reasons why I thought the world yeah. would be better off if I wasn't a part of it. Yeah. You know, my psychiatrist um, told me one time when I was struggling, he said, you know, there are lies at the bottom of suicide and it's that things will never change. And I will always feel this way. Mm -hmm. And um, those lies are so operational when you're in that deep, aren't they? Yeah, it's hilarious looking back now, like the idea that something could never change is impossible to me. Right. Now, like as I'm 28, turning 29 next month, if you told me something would be the same forever, I'd be like, no, it won't. Like stuff changes constantly. The entire universe is in a state of flux. But when you're, the thing is, when you're feeling like that, you know, this past, um, I'll use this as an example. This past weekend, I had red tide poisoning. I live on the coast in, in Tampa Bay. And when you breathe in these toxins from the red tide, like in the air, mm-hmm. um, it, I have asthma. So it like inflamed my lungs oh. and it inflamed the lining of my lungs. And I'm telling you, it was the, it was the most excruciating physical pain in recent memory. Like it was, it was, it hurt all the way through my chest, like from the front of my sternum through my back like I was being stabbed with a spear oh my gosh so bad and in that moment if you said Johnny you'll feel better a week from now I would say I don't care I don't care about a week from now because this is killing me um 10 seconds of this pain feels like 10 years right because of how severe it was and for me that's how that deep depression, that suicidality mm-hmm. was. If you would have told me that things would be different later, the more you delayed that gratification, the less relevant it would feel to me. Like if you said, Johnny, you might feel better in 30 minutes. I'd be mm-hmm. like, well, that doesn't really help me right now, but it's also close enough to where hopefully I can try to make it there. But right. if you said you'll feel better a week from now, I'd be like, screw a week from now. I don't even right. know if I'm going to be alive. It's well, just it's that, almost, that pain distorts your timeline. It it does. It's almost as if um, time stands still and yeah. and freezes you in that moment. I, I, I know that there have been moments in my life when I just sit and look around in a busy area and think my whole world has just stopped and you guys are all still moving around and having a life. And, you know, I, we have a daughter that was uh, diagnosed with cancer when she was two and a half. And I remember driving in the car on the way home after diagnosis and thinking all of you people don't understand my world just stopped and you're still moving. You know, it's that, it's that, um, change in continuum that just, um, really affects us. So, um, so when did you make the, um, connection or the jump to being a mental health advocate, uh, and really devoting your life to that? So I gotta be straight up with you. I started like way before I should have, I, <laughs> I started, so I started working with NAMI in okay. college 
Cool. Um, just like volunteering and, and doing peer support and speaking at events and stuff, doing like mental health advocacy. So it, my 10 year anniversary with them was this year. Um, for those, for those who don't know what that is, that's the national Alliance for mental illness, which yes. is a great group. And so I, I literally went up to uh, the president of NAMI greater Orlando at the time. And I was like, let me help you. Like I, and I told her straight up, like, I'm not well. Like I'm taking five different medications. I'm like on antipsychotic medication right now. I'm in treatment. I experienced debilitating hallucinations. I'm still trying to combat self-harm tendencies. I'm disordered eating like you wouldn't believe. And I want to help. Like, I don't know if I, if I need to get healthy all the way before I can help, but I need to do something. And when I started speaking and doing peer support, I realized that Nobody needs you to be a hundred percent better. Right. You go into an advocacy setting or a peer support setting. No one's like, what the heck? This guy isn't even Mr. Perfect. Right. Actually, there's an understanding that if you're coming in as a peer, that you're still dealing with stuff. So it was so much more of a forgiving environment than I expected. And the more that I shared, the more I realized I was actually, it it created this really cool peer loop, right? Where if you're sharing, it opens up the door for someone else to share. Like it gives them permission. And the more that I spoke, the more permission people felt around me to speak. And then they told me what they were dealing with. And then I could relate. And it was like this healthy feedback loop where I was able to share what I was experiencing. And someone else said, oh, you know what? When I was dealing with bulimia, here's what I experienced. And I'm like, whoa, mm-hmm. no way. Are you kidding me? And it, there's there's this sense of community that pops up when you're honest. Right. So let me be, let me be vulnerable for a minute. So I, um, I started attending our NAMI groups, uh, here locally and, uh, initially found them to be exactly that just really supportive and an open environment where I could share and all of that. But eventually, um, it kind of got to the point where, uh, the things that I struggle with, uh, I have a dissociative disorder, which is, um, very disruptive in my life. And, um, that was something, and they flat out told me, we have no experience with this. We don't even know what you're talking about. Mm. And so all of the, um, all of the leaders or the facilitators, they didn't know. So they wouldn't ask me anything and they wouldn't, Uh. they didn't know how to deal with what I was, what I was saying. And it, and it became even more isolating for me. So, you know, I, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, there's only one NAMI group in town. So, so brutal. (laughs) So what do you do with that? Dude, honestly, that's, that's the risk that you run every time you open your mouth is like, are people going to be like, totally, are they going to look at me? Like, what the heck are you talking about? (laughs) And I'm so sorry you had that experience, but to be, to be straight up, I've experienced that too. Uh And it's like maybe not in exactly the same way that you've experienced it, but I've definitely been to, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of when I went to some on-campus groups uh-huh. um, when I was in college and people just, it's almost like people wanted to share the, the palatable part of their, right. you know, when someone's like, uh, 
what's your greatest weakness? And you're like, my greatest weakness is I'm so kind, you know, or, and you're like, what the heck? Come on, let's tell the truth. And so I would share about something real serious that I was going through and people, and then it would go to the next person. They'd be like, oh, I stubbed my toe and I said a curse word, but I'm, you know, I got over it. And I'm like, no, are you serious? I know yeah. you've experienced something more brutal than that. You're not sharing. And the the hard part is you have to like keep, trying to find community which is so frustrating and it can feel defeating because yeah think about when you're when you're trying to find a, a counselor you have a meeting with a therapist and you're like oh these this person totally sucks like right and does not again, work for me try again and it's it's so hard for your heart to like keep trying to put yourself out there but in my head it's a lot like dating like i'm i'm 20 about turn 29 i'm single and it just means that I haven't found somebody that I would actually want to be with. Right. And then when I look at my challenges with trying to find peer support groups and trying to find the right clinicians, it's, it's like having standards is frustrating, but you're almost better off not settling for a group that makes you feel like a freak too. Right. Right. Well, you know, and to be honest, I found some online groups that, that, um, that fit that. And because I'm in a more, um, I'm in a smaller area, that is the resources that are available, which is mm -hmm. the beauty of the digital age, right? Is you can access those things. Anyway, yeah. that's my own story. I just um, wondered what you'd have to say about that. So, so who do you most uh, need in your life for encouragement to keep going in your work? Like who in my life is yeah. most? Hmm. Yeah. Who do you need? Probably uh, my sister is super supportive and that's invaluable. Like to have someone within your family, like championing you. Yeah. Um, Cause not, you know, like when I announced to my, all my friends and family, like I'm going to make a career out of telling people that I'm ill i'm mentally ill <laughs> they're like oh lord like you're gonna ruin <laughs> are you everything. sure about that <laughs> and and my sister has been someone who just like from day one was like that's important work and you're helping people so i also think i've had to like wrap my head around the fact that people that i love might not be fully supportive mm -hmm. and that you need to basically do a cost benefit analysis. Like, would I rather have my friend or family member approve of what I'm doing in terms of advocacy, or would I rather make a really positive impact on people who mm -hmm. were just like me? Right. And it's been, it's been difficult, but it makes you more appreciative of when you meet someone, even a colleague who's like, oh, you do mental health advocacy? Good for you. That's really important work. Right. And you're like, wow, you know, I wish, like, I wish my dad would say that. Uh huh. But if I know that he won't, and then I meet a stranger and they say that, it still makes a dent, you know? Right. Right. It's still sweet when, um, it feels sweeter when people, when people are, um, supportive and, and can understand mm -hmm. that can get you. I, and also, I, I mean, the other component that we talked about too is stigma. Like you got to understand the reason why people aren't super gung ho about me doing this work is because stigma is strong. So right. the more advocacy I do, the lower the stigma becomes, the more comfortable it is for people to speak about it. So mm -hmm. I'm like actively working to 
fight the thing that's keeping these people from encouraging me. You right. Know? You know, um, this podcast obviously is post traumatic faith. And I feel like I ride that line in between not exploiting people's stories, but telling people's stories for the purpose of showing how they've come through with um, faith and hope. And so, you know, you have to go back to your, to your original reason. Why am I doing this? And what, what is, what is at the core of it? Right. I love that phrase, not exploiting people's stories. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So um, speaking of podcasts, so what is uh, the Cope Notes podcast about? What's kind of the tip of the spear? So what I, what I wanted to do when I set out to start the show is I wanted to do interviews, like have conversations with people about mental health, but it would be people who aren't traditionally interviewed about mental health. So if you listen to a mental health podcast, I can't, I don't know how many people interview like a doctor and a researcher. And that's cool. Like I listen mm -hmm. to stuff like that because I'm a nerd, but what about all of the other people who experience mental illness or even just based like people living without a diagnosis who are just facing pressure and stress and right. um, even, even just symptomatic depression, like even if they're living without a diagnosis. So what I do is I interview um, like musicians and barbers and nannies and like all sorts of different people that you'd walk right by in a street or sit mm -hmm. down next to at a bus stop. And you might wonder like, you know, what's their experience? Like, how do they cope with stuff? So right. I'm interviewing everyday people, not mental health experts, but everyday people about how they cope with the pressures and stresses of what they face on a daily basis. And to be honest, you know, earlier we talked about, you know, whether or not we're ever going to get to the point where we can talk openly about mental health and not have stigma. We're never going to get to that point. If we can't talk to people about how their days are yeah. about when they're <laughs> sad, about what makes them happy or what makes them, what makes them nervous. We're never going to get to the, to that other goal. If we don't, accomplish what you're trying to do with your conversations man yeah we need to we need to it's so funny like how comfortable could we ever be as a society if the only people who ever talk about mental health are people who are a hundred percent healed and on the other side of recovery somehow magically right. or or people who have doctorate degrees like those exactly. people still need to speak, of course, they still deserve a seat at the table. But if those are the only two types of people who we ever hear talk about mental health, we're never going to culturally accept it. Right. I agree. I agree. Well, I have one last question for you. Um, what do you most want people to learn from your life so far? Hmm. <sighs> that you don't have to have it all figured out to make a difference. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> Johnny, how do people find you and cope notes and um, find out more about the app and all of that? So if you go to copenotes.com, you'll find um, pretty much all the links you'll need. Uh, you can actually try Cope Notes for free. We put up like a free seven day trial that we just put up that you can cool. check out. Um, and then 
I have a TED Talk. So if you go on YouTube and search Johnny Crowder TED Talk, you should find it. And then on social media, I don't use Twitter because I don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. I am on Facebook. And then my Instagram is at Johnny Crowder loves you. And I've been using LinkedIn more. So if you're that kind of person, please go on LinkedIn and add me and hold me accountable so that I can keep using it. All right. Sounds good. Well, hey, this was a good conversation and I really appreciate your time and input. Heck yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, jillreilly.author, and on Twitter, jillreillyauthor. Email jill at jillreilly.org.